1: Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast.
0: We're going to talk about vaccines and COVID. Now, just relax, please. Dr. Tam, Teresa Tam, our uh, top public health care doctor in this country, has expressed a worry about worst case possible scenario this fall and winter with COVID. And we're being urged by public health officials to be vaccinated, to continue the vaccination process if you haven't begun it. So if you've had three, you should have four. And however many follow as public health advises. At the same time, there is the seasonal flu and there's vaccination for that. And we're being told that it's an excellent idea to be vaccinated against the seasonal flu. But there's also other vaccinations that people are receiving, like shingles. So if you had two of those, can you mix and match? Is there a problem if you do that? We're going to be asking you how you feel and what you're planning to do as far as um, vaccination is concerned and boosters. Now, a couple of weeks ago, after I spoke with Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist at the uh, Toronto General Hospital and associate professor of medicine at the uh, University of Toronto, when I, after I spoke with Dr. Bogosh, I said that I wasn't sure that I was going to have the fourth vaccination, second booster. And I got everything from, wait a go, Roy, to are you uh, off your rocker? I think we're all at this stage now where we make decisions at this stage and we have to act maybe on best advice and our own best advice. Dr. Bogosh is back with us. Dr. Bogosh, thank you very much for the time. Do you find that people are, I don't know if I should use the word reluctant, but a little more circumspect about continuing the vaccination process?
2: Yeah, uh, I think you're spot on. Uh, I think we're seeing a lot of that. And of course, that's reflected in the numbers. When we look at the rates of vaccination, there way lower than uh what where there's they're way lower than where they where they should be. And you know, in particular I think one area to focus on is the people who are at greatest risk for severe infection, people who are at greatest risk of hospitalization, people who are at greatest risk of death. Uh, that's sixty years of age and older. Uh and uh you know obviously people will choose to do what they choose to do. But I think people who are listening, who are uh, unvaccinated or maybe haven't received a booster, um, if you are over the age of 60 or you have underlying medical conditions that put you at greater risk for severe infection, you can markedly reduce your risk of severe infection, hospitalization, and death with a vaccine. Every country around the world basically has Very similar data, if not identical data, demonstrating that these vaccines markedly reduce the risk of severe infection, especially in those who are 60 years of age and older or who have underlying medical
0: conditions. Why do you suppose, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but why do you suppose that the message really isn't resonating as perhaps you as the infectious diseases specialist would like or Dr. Tam would like, public health would like? People are saying, and I've had people say this to me, I've had three, I've had two shingles vaccines I, I I've had COVID. I don't want to do this again. Why is the message not, and if it, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but is the message getting through?:
2: No, it's not. It's not. And I think you know there's probably lots of different reasons for this. One reason of many is that there are communication issues, right? We don't have streamlined communication. It would be helpful if we had you know solid, data-driven clear communication coordinated between political and public health leadership at federal provincial and municipal levels and delivered in an age a language and a culturally appropriate manner given how large and diverse the canadian population is that's one there's many other reasons why and again i think one of the reason that we can't ignore is the amplification of misinformation and disinformation in online networks that make its way sometimes into mainstream networks, and that pushes people to make poor decisions for themselves. Um, It's totally okay to have open, fair, honest debates and discussions about data. It's totally okay to make some people need some more time to make up their mind or chat with a healthcare provider to make a decision. That's okay. It's okay. Everyone wants to do what's best for themselves, best for the family. That makes sense. But we have a huge issue with misinformation and disinformation, not just in Canada, globally, it's not just pandemic related, it's related to all facets of life and we really need to get on that. So those are just two reasons, but I'm sure we could sit here for hours and talk about many other reasons that are driving this.
0: Yeah. Well, now we have these uh, these variants and we've known about variants for some time now, but we have these new variants. And so people then ask the question, and I'm trying to just get this this out in the open, people ask the question, well, how do we know that the vaccine that's out there, the booster now, is actually going to be effective against the variants that we're discovering or are being discovered and will potentially cause us harm this fall and winter? How do we know that the vaccine that was developed months ago will be effective now? So
2: a couple of reasons. One is remember that we've had multiple variants already. We've had the original virus. We've had the alpha variant we've had the Delta variant, we've had Omicron BA1, BA2, BA5, with every single one of those variants. Remember what the vaccine has done time and time again. It has protected people from severe infection, such as hospitalization and death, every single time, regardless of the variant. That also involves, though, having an honest conversation about what the vaccines do and what they don't do. They have stood up and stood the test of time protecting people against severe infection. Earlier in the pandemic, they also protected people very significantly against infection and onward transmission. As the virus evolved and as Omicron emerged, it did less of that. It's not nothing. still does something against protecting against infection and onward transmission. It just does much less of that. But the take-home point is that they are still remarkably effective at protecting against severe infection, hospitalization and death, regardless of the variant. And there's nothing and remember these, these variants that are emerging that we're talking about, they're still Omicron. They're just different sublineages of Omicron. So we've seen places like Singapore where they've had a big wave, but again, very little in the way of ICU admissions. And again, the vaccines all apparent still really hold up against severe infection like hospitalization and death.
0: What do you do, and this is a question I've seen and heard from people, but I've certainly seen it in emails. What do you do if you've had uh, other vaccines, vaccinations like two shingle shots, and you've had some, some other vaccine, and, and now you're looking at a, at a booster for Omicron, and you're being advised to simultaneously um, take the annual flu shot? Can you do that? How does the body respond to all of that?
2: For starters, you take a step back and you listen to your patients and you listen and hear about what their concerns are and actually listen to what their concerns are rather than say, yeah, 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 get the shot. Like, really, what are people concerned about? What is the hesitation? What are the issues? And take it seriously. That's the first step. And that's, I think, the most important step. From a health standpoint, it's totally okay. I mean, there's different vaccines for different illnesses. Yeah. In in the fall. We know it's flu season and it's flu shot time, and that can happen. You know, shingles, vaccines, of course, people need to get them. Usually it's over the age of 60, sometimes over the age of 50, but it's not an urgent measure. If you want to separate your flu shot from the other shots, you absolutely can. You absolutely can. Same with COVID-19. I mean, you don't have to get it at the same time as an annual influenza shot. You can. You, you sure can. But if you want to separate them, if it makes someone feel more comfortable or better to separate them, you can separate them as well. But, you know, this is part of health maintenance, preventing illness, preventing sickness, right? I'm sure people listening, many people listening, have had the shingles. Man, you don't want
0: yeah, You're talking that. to I mean, one I'm, person right now.
2: I'm standing on the 14th floor of the Toronto General Hospital right now on call this weekend, and we see people with shingles not infrequently and Boy, oh, boy, do they not have a pleasant time with that. If you can prevent that, you should. These are vaccine-preventable illnesses. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's stating the obvious. Let's prevent illness. The vaccine did a great job.
0: Yeah, I've had shingles, as I said, and uh, that is not a pleasant ride. Fortunately for me, no it was way. over in just a couple of weeks. But for other people, it can be years. And I just had that traditional around the, the midriff area of when, when it strikes you near the eyes or other parts of your yeah. body, it's, it's, it's absolutely dangerous. Yeah. Uh, wh- one more question for you. For the person who's had, and I had an email about this, for the person who's had no vaccine, no COVID vaccine whatsoever. Not the first, not the second, not the first uh, booster, because they didn't want to get it done. But now they're thinking, maybe I should. Where do they start? Do they start with the first vaccine? Do they start with a booster? Where do you start these people?
3: Oh, it's easy. It's,
2: it's really easy. You go into a clinic. You go into a pharmacy. You go into the family doc's office. Wherever you, wherever vaccines are, they're free, widely available. You say, hey, I've never had a vaccine. Can I get one? And they'll say, absolutely. And then you'll probably get a second one, separated by a couple of months. And you go from there. You know that's that's a good start. That's a good start. And you start with the first two shots, and then you know you talk to your healthcare provider about what to do next. But it's it's never too late if someone is interested in starting. And I think it's a very good idea. And again, I I know we're running out of time, but it's extremely important for people who are listening, who are over the age of sixty, or who have underlying medical conditions. I mean, just remember, there's going to be more COVID out there. Or there is already out there, and if you haven't had a shot, or if you're six months after your most recent vaccine or most recent recovery from infection, this is a really good idea to get to protect you from more severe illness. That's all the data points in that direction. Those are the individuals who are more likely to end up in hospital or, and
0: have a rough time with COVID-19. All right. I want to talk about food some more because this is one of the issues where we are um, really paying very close attention. When you have the inflation rate the food inflation rate, outpacing the general inflation rate, for ten or twelve or thirteen straight months, that's really significant. And where are we headed? And what's happening to Canadians? I saw this statistics from uh, Food Banks Canada: seven million Canadians reported they went hungry at least once between March of 2020 and March of this year. You put that into perspective: that's more than one in five people in this country have gone hungry. Kirsten Beardsley is the CEO of Food Banks Canada. We've talked to Ms. Beardsley before. She's back with us on the program. She's going to be back next weekend as well because Food Banks Canada is releasing new information during the week. But, Kirsten, thank you for coming on the show. I wanted to talk to you about this this week because it is such such a compelling issue, and it's one that people are talking about they're experiencing it uh, and we've heard it on the air so let me begin with this are canadians going hungry somewhere in canada each day
4: oh there's no doubt um absolutely so you know when we're when we're talking when we're food bankers we see, we're on the front lines of this issue every single day um there are you know too many food banks in this country but that Points to the fact that hunger exists in every single community, and what we're seeing right now is something that we haven't seen in our 41 year history in Canada. Is just the number, sheer number of people who are having to make. I think I've talked about this before, but what we call impossible choices. And it's what you're saying: people who are having to decide, am I going to pay my rent this month? Am I going to feed my kids? Um, And usually what it means is they're going to skip meals so that those those two things uh, go ahead as planned. But it's it's really tough times.
0: Yeah. And we have those other polling numbers that were done Mm -hmm. um, over the last number of years, which show that upwards of 50 percent of the Canadian population, sometimes slightly more, sometimes a little less, are within two hundred dollars of not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month. So, if you're that close to the margins and the food prices go up and inflation is going up and, and, and interest rates are going up, something's going to suffer. And um, as you say, people are faced with these impossible choices. Canada food banks 23% of Canadians reported eating less than they needed to because they don't have enough money for groceries. That's huge.
4: Yeah, it, 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 shocked us to be quite honest. We did the poll or we commissioned the poll because we wanted to figure out what was coming up. What, what could the food banks expect heading into the months ahead? And that number scared us. I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, usually food insecurity is something that touches about, you know, 12% of the population. That's not okay. I mean, we don't want 12% of people having to make those kinds of choices, but, but a number that's, that's double that. Um, was shocking for us, and I think we can all relate. It's just been a really tough time. Even if you've got the income coming in, you're making some decisions, and I think we can all understand that if you're, you know, if you're at that brink, you you have to make choices that no one should have to make. And unfortunately, food is sort of a variable cost. You know, you don't you don't get to who was I speaking with this week who said, yeah, you don't get to move out of your house for a few days and and reduce your costs. Right. So the one thing in your budget that you can sort of move up and down is food. Um, and yet it's so critical for people, you know, kids to thrive and people to be able to concentrate at work. And, you know, it's, I, I'm scared actually of what, what's to come for us all.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. How are you doing at uh, Food Banks Canada? How are you faring? Because in March of last year, use of mm-hmm. food banks in March of 2021 was at a level not seen since the Great Recession of 2008. And here we are in a year and a half later. And we've been going through inflationary spiral, food uh, uh, everywhere. How's How are you doing at Food Banks Canada?
4: Well, I mean, like I, like you said in, in the intro, we'll have our new hunger count out uh, this coming week. Um, but just to give folks a sense, um, things did not level off or come down even close over the last year. So we're looking at even bigger records in food bank use, records none of us want to make. And, um, you know, I will say, I think Food Banks Canada, you know, our team's doing all right. But the food bankers themselves, I worry about, right? This, you know, they were in the in the pandemic on the front lines keeping that food available and the shelves stocked and you know to get to this point and have it only be harder um you know it's it's we we really need the support of everyone right now it's not easy times and this is our busy time of year these are our make or break months um we rely on the generosity of our neighbors to get us through these months and and stock us up for the um for the winter months so uh yeah it's we're doing all right but it is tough we're relying on each other for support a lot
0: how can we uh how can we help out most
4: i think i think folks do and i really want to say thank you to everyone who's been able to give um you know please know that your donations are going where they need to go food banks are buying more food than they ever have you've seen the costs at the grocery store you know that food banks are having to pay more for that food as well. So just thank you so much. If you've got a little bit extra, we very much appreciate it. Um, And even if it, you know, I really want to stress this as well, we should all not be okay with the level of food insecurity. So if you don't have the money to give, lend your voice to the cause, talk about food insecurity, Um, talk about it with your neighbors, with with your kids, I don't think food insecurity at this level or any level has to be part of, of Canada. And I think we, we can build a movement to, to decrease it.
0: Kirsten, food insecurity itself, um, it affects specific groups particularly. Mm-hmm. And I read some of the, some of the reports from, from Food Banks Canada. Remind us who um, is most, I think, vulnerable to the idea, or at least the reality, not the idea, but the reality of food insecurity.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I do want to preface this by saying it's any one of us. As you said, you know, we don't most many Canadians are are not that far off from, um, you know, being paid or they are living paycheck to paycheck, not far off from having no savings. So just a reminder that anybody um, could be at risk. But the trends that we see: um, single adults living alone, so people who are really isolated don't have that buffer of a second income. And really at risk of falling into deep poverty. So once you get, of course, off of your EI and into provincial social assistance rates, it's so hard to climb yourself back out of poverty. Um, we see people, um, single parents, um, obviously again without that second income. We see people with disabilities. Um, I was at a conference this week and was, you know, got a real. Um, Reality check about the costs of living with disabilities and how much more expensive it is. So not just food, but medical devices um, and all the services that that maybe some of us think are paid for by governments and aren't. So, you know, those are some of the groups that we see coming through the doors.
0: How many uh, food bank users turn out to be children?
4: Uh, How many? Sorry.
0: How how many uh, users of food banks, Canadian food banks, turn out to be children?
4: Yeah, that's a that's a heartbreaking one. So, a third of uh, food bank users are children in Canada. So, about thirty three percent of of the users we see, and just for context, they represent about twenty percent of the overall population. So, um, yeah, that one gets to me obviously, and it's one that I hope I never become desensitized to because this is you know this is the future we're building. These are kids who should be able to thrive. Go to school and learn. And in the future, you know, these could be the people who, you know, bring us solutions around climate ch- change or, you know, what are we taking from ourselves when we can't figure out how to get kids um, the food that they need? So, yeah, that's the heartbreaking one. 33% of food banks yeah, users in Canada. Are that is.
0: So if people who are listening right now want to do something immediately to assist food banks Canada, what can they do right now?
4: Right now, look up your local food bank and if you're in a position, donate food, funds, or time. Um, we always value uh, volunteers. They really do power the food banking system in this country. Um, there are um, you know, campaigns, if you go to foodbankscanada.ca, we've got a start the hunger campaign. So simply sharing things on your social feeds about about how um, big of an issue this is in Canada. Um, and then, you know, during elections, I know there's municipal elections um, in, in Ontario right now, but this should be an issue that we talk to politicians about. This should be on everyone's radar and every level of government has a responsibility to play from municipal to provincial to federal government. <sighs>
1: How many vehicles do students have to actually discuss economic issues? So I decided, why not put the Roy Green show on my course outline and actually make it required listening for my students?
0: I have to tell you, I was absolutely blown away, absolutely blown away when uh, Professor Eric Cam sent me an email to tell me what he was doing and uh, how this program was fitting into his university classroom at... um, Metropolitan University in Toronto, macroeconomics professor Dr. Eric Cam. You know him well. He's a regular contributor to this program. If I had to pay you for all the times you appear on this program, I'd be broke. How are you, Dr. Cam?
1: I'm doing very, very well. But trust me, the honor, as always, is all mine.
0: Well, thank you. Just
1: uh, I, I haven't said
0: very much about it because I don't really know how to explain it without sounding like I'm, you know blowing hot air about myself. It's it's not about that. It's it's about what you've decided to do and what you think this program can actually bring to your students. Just just tell our listeners, please.
1: Well, you know, the pandemic Roy really changed the way that we do education when we were forced to go online. And we had to find more creative ways very quickly to deliver our curriculum to our students. And as someone who loves teaching and the science of teaching pedagogy, Um, I started to really investigate whether what we used to call the sage on the stage model of having a professor, uh, you know, in a lecture hall, they speak for three hours, the students listen, and then everybody leaves happy. But when you really take apart that model, it frankly doesn't work very well anymore. It, It doesn't meet students, as we say, where the students live. And so I got to thinking during the pandemic about how could I do my job better? And I really realized that, uh, and I said this to you yesterday, learning economics is doing economics, but doing economics can't just be a static, boring mechanism anymore, where you give students thousands of multiple choice questions and they figure out the science of what to bubble in. Um, that, that's boring for students, and they don't take much away from the course. So I started to think about what are the outlets that we have for students to think and discuss economics and I'm not just saying this because you and I are speaking but I think the Roy Green show is about as good as it gets to have outlets in Canada about the Canadian economy so I started to talk to my students about your show and incentivize them to listen and it is through your show that we talk about the topics that we do in class and the students love it And it's not static. It's dynamic. It creates debate in class about the left and the right and the wealthy and the poor and about the different ways to distribute the wealth of a society. So really, Roy, it's me who should be thanking you for allowing me to in a in a sense take your show and use it as a teaching tool.
0: Well, I'm honored that you've done that and I will deflect to to our great guests and of course including you and and our great callers and listeners and I mean that quite sincerely because this is a this is an amalgam if you will of uh, different parts and different substances that come together and create what we create every every weekend. Dr. Cam, would you introduce us please to the students, to your students who are with us today?
1: Um, I'm honored. You know, every year I have a thousand or so new students, but the students who sit in the front row are very much, they self-identify as those who are most engaged. So Eileen and Tyler, I asked them to come on today because I can tell you uh, all day and all night what it's like to teach first year economics. But I haven't taken first year economics since 1986. So I thought that you could speak to them and they would give you their reflections of not only being Uh, students in first year economics in 2022 but also how you can use media like yours to enhance the learning experience
0: yeah absolutely glad to and then i'll ask you to speak with your students as well but let me uh, say hello to both of them and introduce the students to our to our listeners eileen and eileen you've said we can use your last name is that right
3: uh yeah that's right
0: Uh, as long as you're comfortable with it okay all right eileen cook and tyler we can use your last name too of course. Okay, so Eileen Cook and Tyler Smith, thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. So, Eileen, if I get to start with you, uh, were you surprised when Professor Cam introduced this idea that uh, you should, as a class, listen to this program and what we talk about, and then discuss in 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 a lecture uh, environment? And how's it worked out?
3: Um, it's working out very well. I was a bit surprised, uh, but I am not. A stranger to different styles of learning. Actually, in uh, grade 12, my calculus class, we changed uh, my teacher's car tires to learn about like force when we were learning about vectors. So it was different because I've never had a teacher who's on a radio talking about economics. And honestly, before this, I was never even like I didn't even know what economics was. So it was a, a different experience for me, but it really helped. Not only with understanding the topics we're talking about, but also understanding how to use them and where they take place in our everyday life.
0: That's you know, it's really interesting to hear that. And Tyler, how how has this experience and I'll ask you the same question, were you surprised when Professor Cam introduced this idea of listening to the program and then discussing what we talk about and, and his contributions to the program in the in the learning environment and how has it helped you if it has?
5: Uh, so surprised, I'd say
6: absolutely. just i, I you know coming from directly from high school, there was never really this integration of the real world in what we were learning. So it started with uh, some emails saying, "I'm live on the air, take a listen," and eventually we started using it as a uh, a warm up to the class. and uh, through participation and you know participation marks the incentives, we were able to start having discussions about what was being lent and uh, eventually I, I realized, like, this is really helping me learn more about uh, economics as a whole. Uh, I, I remember, actually, last week specifically, we were talking about uh, different macroeconomic indicators for recession. So, you know, whether the labor market is going to be hit or not. And there was a, full, a very long uh, and quite civil debate as to whether we think the recession will continue if we're already in one and whether or not it will hit the labor market. And having those debates really solidifies in uh, students' heads what's going on, how we can use what we're about to learn. And it becomes, instead of just slides in a lecture, it becomes a real-world application and something very engaging.
0: I'm so glad that it's working out that way. And we do know, and I've mentioned this before, that uh, Professor Cam, if you look at Rate My Professor, he is rated so highly... By so many of his students, I mean, massive numbers of students say, I would take the course again. I've seen that. If, if I could just make sure that I could sit with Dr. Cam. Uh, Professor Cam, why don't you uh, just engage Eileen and Tyler? What, what questions do you have for them about the impact that this exercise of yours, this, this initiative of yours is having on, on not only them, but also their fellow classmates?
1: You know, Roy, um, what I would want to ask them um, is something that really motivates my teaching. And it was handed down to me by, frankly, the best economics professor in the country. His name is Dr. Avi Cohen. And the reality is, is that about 95 percent of first year students never take another course in economics. So you really and, and this is really what motivated me to do this is the thought about What do I want students to remember from my course five years from now? And, you know, economics on some level, if you want to teach it on a purely mathematical level, is about deriving curves and deriving functions. But nobody, nobody five years from now is going to care about deriving functions. Nobody says when their taxes are due, I'm glad that I can prove a curve is strictly quasi-concave. I've never heard another human being say that. So I guess what I would want to ask, eileen and tyler in representing their students is what did they want to learn what did they want when they took economics other than the fact that it's required for business students what did they want to learn what did they want to take away from the course eileen why don't we start with you
3: um well for me uh like as i said i went into this course seven eight weeks ago i can't exactly remember but like not even knowing what economics was and uh My heart very set on a specific uh, specialty in the business world. But now, because of Canned Class, I don't just understand marketing, but it's also brought in something fun during my weeks, a class where I don't sit and kind of hope to go home, but a class where I get to experience and enjoy and it's very interactive. Um, So it's also made me like economics more, and it's made me think about economics more, and it's made me think about economics as a more long-term part of my life and not just a class i have to take once because it's required and i think that's a really great thing when something someone doesn't even know or something someone hates is just changed by the way someone else has taught it because it it really brings a lot of knowledge and you know knowledge is power and knowledge is a beautiful amazing very important part of this world
0: Yes, it is. It's so, so encouraging to hear you speak in those terms, you know, because we're always, well, not always, but we hear people say the young people really care about this. This is a old argument. I talk to you, and I talk to Tyler, and I talk to other young people face-to-face, and I hear some very, very encouraging things. Tyler, how do you answer Professor Cam's point that he's that he's asking you?
6: Um, I'd say I've definitely realized how much economics actually influences the real world. Uh, Before, I would hear terms like demand, supply, and we we think we have an understanding of it, but once we actually learn what these things mean, what actually affects it, we get a a greater understanding of the the business world as a whole, and especially because every single day we take place in business, whether it's buying something, selling something, actually knowing what affects that has completely changed the way I looked at a lot of things uh, in business altogether, and especially... When I'm planning on majoring in business, I found that to be an extremely, extremely helpful tool, and especially the way Dr. Camp teaches it, I found just a complete uh, connection in the way I learn and the way he teaches. So, just having that connection, having that ability to grow from there, has just—it's been uh, very, very helpful.
0: Okay, so it's—we uh, can—we can presume, assume, presume that you will take more economics courses because you're going to uh, follow the business course, right, Tyler?
6: Oh, absolutely!
0: Yeah, Eileen, what about you? Uh, economics wasn't part of your uh, part of your tableau. I love that word. Uh, <laughs> eight or nine weeks ago, are you going to be taking more more economics courses because of the experience with Doctor Tam? Um,
3: well, yeah, I'm a business student as well, so I was okay. always expecting to take more economics classes. Right. But um, now I'm actually considering doing a specialization in economics and like managerial sciences. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> Um when I originally went into school for marketing management, um, so that's kind of the change it's made in my life. I have decided to like look at other routes where this is a bigger part of my degree and not just, you know, a couple of classes I take because it's
4: required.
0: So I was wondering, uh, Doctor Cam, maybe you can carry the ball on this. What can we do here? based on what your students have told you maybe you can engage with your students what can we do here to make it an even better experience and a more um, impacting experience for your students because if we can do that for your students we can do it for our listeners as well other listeners
1: well for sure and you know and now my my students do join a very large list of Roy Green Show listeners well i guess if i'm going to play the roast the roast the host the the role of host Um, I guess I'd want to ask my students um, from their listening to your show, uh, what brings them back? Because I know that they're repeat listeners and frankly, that's, I, that's not because of anything that I do directly. So what do they want? What segments do they like? What topics, um, make them tune in and make them come back? So I guess I would want to ask Eileen, um, specifically, although Tyler as well. What about the Roy Green show interests you and what brings you back to it weekend after weekend?
3: Well, a big part of it is like, as I said before, uh, what we're learning in class is great and we understand everything, but it's really interesting to see it being applied to a real world perspective, especially one that like affects us as people who are living in Canada and experiencing the Canadian lifestyle. Um, And, you know, having these experts talking on this show about all these different situations that affect me and affect the country I've grown up in my entire life is very important and very interesting because I'm a strong believer in the the philosophy where if you can teach it to a six-year-old, you're an expert on it. And I really love that it's easy to understand as, like, someone who's not always been very knowledgeable about these topics, and it's easy to understand, it's easy to comprehend, and it's easy to see both sides of the spectrum and where everything's coming from. And I find that really uh, amazing about it.
0: Well, thank you. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad we can do that. Tyler, What What? do you? What, what, how do you answer Dr. Cam's question?
6: Uh, I'd say in regards to uh, the show, I, I absolutely adore the, the concepts and everything that's talked about in... Uh, current day. So, talking about things like uh, retirement savings, social insurance, uh, and just knowing how our economy is doing in general, I've found to be uh, extremely engaging. And uh, especially in class, a large topic of debate. Uh, there are a lot of experts that are brought onto the show as well. So, hearing their perspectives and hearing that uh, brought through the students and having their opinion put forward as well, it the, the ability to generate a lot of really good discussion Through these topics, I found to be something uh, that's made the show and the class uh, really, really enjoyable.
0: You know, it's interesting. I say this to you both. Very interesting. I'll say say it to you, Dr. Cam. Eileen and Tyler, I, I love that they're listening to the show, and I love that the classmates are listening to the show. If you look at uh, the expected demographics for a program like this, they're not exactly in our target demo. I mean, we love having them. We want more of them, but, but they're not exactly the, general, the the usual tune-in audience. But I'm so glad they get something positive out of it. And, and you are the, you're the facilitator, and I'm going to say this, and I've said it before. This, again, shows me why you are such a, a valued professor. Now, one other thing I want to say. May I attend one of your classes?
1: Uh, you, I would be honored to have you come to one of my lectures. And let me just, uh, I'll send you those details privately. Okay. But let, let me tell you quickly two things that come to mind. And, I, and I'll try even not to get emotional about it. Number one, this proves to me, this experiment has proven to me that universities are about students. They're not about professors. And they're not about anything else. They are about trying to unleash the power of students. And if we do that a little bit more... Let students run with their ideas. Let them be creative. Don't stifle them. There is no end to what a university can be. And when people ask me, can students today be the leaders of tomorrow? My students can, Roy. My Absolutely. students can. I the, the future for these young people, as exemplified by Eileen and Tyler, is exceptionally bright. Tom
0: Korski is the executive editor of Black Locks Reporter at Minding Ottawa on Twitter. We always enjoy the opportunity to speak with Tom. Uh, Tom, we just did a um, had a call on the, on this uh, this country of ours on the the unhappiness index. I don't know what it's called. It was just I, I just can't remember exactly what what the what the term was. But uh, we I asked whether we would be better off or whether this country is leading it's heading towards some sort of fragmentation. Some people said it may happen uh, if things don't change. I think that was sort of the prevailing view. But now then I think what's going on in Ottawa at the commission investigating whether the Emergencies Act invoking was appropriate, what that's going to do to any sense of of national unity or disunity. And uh, I I see that, I mean, you're writing about it on Black Locks Reporter. I don't want to take all the time here. But I looked at one one post that you had, Feds were so frightened Our Freedom Convoy, the House of Commons Speaker slept under armed guard at his Ottawa home. So why do we do that?
5: They were uh, freaking out, Roy. They were petrified. I, no one knows why. Exactly right. To The uh, Speaker of the Commons, Tony Rhoda, had assigned himself assigned armed guards to stand outside his Ottawa residence while he slept. I don't know what he was afraid of. Uh, Roy, my my, uh, uh, little desk in the National Press Building was right on Wellington Street. I walked through the Freedom Convoy after dark, twice a day, never saw the seething Nazi insurrection that the feds talked about. Fifty, five-zero, fifty Mounties were assigned to security at the Prime Minister's cottage. Fifty to Rideau Hall. It's like they were anticipating a shootout. It was that bizarre, but there was this mood of hysteria at the time, and the, the further we get away from it, the more berserk it seems. But no wonder they they had this uh, really, we could say fairly, gross overreaction to what was a peaceful protest when you're sleeping under armed guard. What, it's, that's, that's where they were.
0: Yeah, you posted uh, on Blacklock's reporter at Mining Ottawa on the nineteenth of October. At Marco Mendocino says, "Freedom Convoy made Ottawa virtually ungovernable." Quote end quote. A claim contradicted by internal at Safety Canada memos, since most employees work remotely. Disruption to government. I'm sorry, I don't want to laugh. But disruption to government is minor. I'm not, I'm not laughing at it. It's just when I, when I, when I put those two together, there's not even, there's not even a, a remote chance of a fit.
5: No, but we can put the cards on the table now, Roy. You're left with an overarching impression that these were weak men overcompensating by attempting to do what they believed strong men would do. When Mendocino says, after the fact, as you mentioned last week, that they these protesters have made ottawa ungovernable virtually ungovernable chaos that's anarchy it can only mean he didn't read the memos in his own department because his own department said yeah it's not no it's it's no big deal minor disruption as you exactly you accurately quote roy most employees are working from home anyway. They could care less. You can camp out on Wellington Street. That is not critical infrastructure. You can sit there for months, zero impact on government operations. That's just the fact. That's what the government said.
0: Where do you think Where do you think this is going? Where will this commission uh, wind up? Because their only mandate. Is to determine whether or not the uh, the liberals, whether the government, had reason for invoking the emergency act. It's not exactly what they're supposed to be asking, but where do you think it's going? What 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 are we going to find when Mister Trudeau uh, appears and 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 testifies?
5: Well, I think it's bad. I think it's bad because cabinet has to some at some point come up with the extraordinary evidence that justifies their extraordinary action declaring the emergency act. Declaring a national emergency, a public disorder, not just out 20 feet outside the prime minister's office. Nationwide, Roy, Mount Pearl, Peterborough, Red Deer, national disorder. That's what the order said. They're not even close. I, I have a couple of takeaways, and, and, and neither of them are very pretty. We can't anticipate maybe cabinet has some extraordinary evidence and they're keeping it a secret for dramatic effect. I guess we'll find out. But the question before the judge is, did cabinet break a law and then lie about it? And then the question is, will, if that's the case, will he express condemnation for that in such withering terms that no future cabinet will ever touch that again? Don't touch that act hot. Because otherwise, if you normalize this, yes. guess what a future cabinet will do every time the indigenous protesters want to shut down Via Rail's line or there's a strike at the mill? Oh, oh, economic damage. Let's freeze the accounts. It's dreadful.
0: And we do have to remember that at the time the Emergencies Act was invoked, the issue at Coots, Alberta, on the border was over. The Ambassador Bridge blockade was over. There was no reason for this national emergency, which the Emergencies Act actually compromised, as we all know, the civil rights of each and every Canadian. That is the, and I keep saying this, and people must be sick of my saying it, but it's the parliamentary nuclear option. You don't reach for that button unless there's no other resource.
5: And there's an anecdote that that underscores exactly what you said, Roy. The mayor's office on the February 14th morning of the invocation of the Emergencies Act, note they did not have a heads up, the act was coming. The mayor's office in Ottawa sent a guy out, To take pictures of the protest streets. Why did he do that? Because they just cut a deal with the truck drivers to remove the freight liners and the pickups from residential streets and the condo buildings. But so the chief of staff testified we couldn't get a clear picture. So we sent out a a guy from the office with a camera. You take lots of. Well, guess what? Those photos have been submitted in evidence at the Public Order Emergency Commission. It's like a Christmas card. It's completely (laughs) barren streets with the soft snow falling. You could not imagine a less tense filled image than the photos of these streets at the exact moment. The exact moment, Roy, the prime minister was telling the premiers on a teleconference there is public disorder. It is mayhem on the streets of Ottawa. We have to go with that atomic option. Those are the facts.
0: I wonder sometimes, and I talked about this yesterday, whether Mr. Trudeau is going to try to find or will find a way to uh, not appear, whether this is going to take a turn that we cannot even imagine yet. And I keep thinking about uh, the uh, Admiral Mark Norman case where they went after him with no reason whatsoever. The admiral had simply done what he was supposed to do, and that is convert a freighter or a cargo ship to um, a Navy supply ship so that we actually would have a deep water Navy, an ocean Navy, because without a supply ship, all you have is a coastal defense force. So he brought that ship, that contract in, on time and under budget. But he made the prime minister unhappy because they wanted the contract to go to a different shipbuilder. So they went after the admiral. And Mr. Trudeau, twice publicly, mused about Admiral Mark Norman, who spent more than 30 years in the service of this country and was the second highest ranked military officer he mused publicly about the, uh, the, the, the the Admiral Norman's time in court. And then they took care of themselves because, as you well remember, Tom, when uh, when it was brought up that Mr. Trudeau may have to testify and others in his government may have to testify, they got themselves legal um, representation paid for by the taxpayer. But Admiral Norman, who was still an admiral, still in the service of this country, they did not agree that his legal expenses should be paid for by the taxpayer. And they were considerable and could, I think, ruin him financially. And then what did they do when, they, when the prosecutor saw the the case they had and said, I can't take this to a judge. I, I, I can't take this forward. No mas. Roberto Duran lives again. No mas. And away they went. And what did they do when Admiral Norman said, Well, I want to share some information with Canadians. They reached a settlement with the admiral, and I don't blame him for taking it, and what did they do? They added an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, to the settlement. So we know nothing, and Mr. Trudeau doesn't have to speak. I'm just, some little wheel in the back of my brain is spinning, wondering whether we're going to have a, a no mass moment.
5: This is about power and ethics. There's no question, Roy. And it's about whether the truth matters. Let's just be candid. This is what this is about, whether cabinet told the truth. When they said this was a national emergency, they had to take extraordinary measures against those political protesters. You're getting down to brass tacks now. Every time we say, you know, we're kind of hitting the bottom of the barrel, it turns out to be a false bottom. There's a new bottom of the barrel. But this one's bad. Yes, it is.
0: So, um, MPs at Health Committee tell Dr. Tam, Canadians don't trust her and won't take GovCan Health Advice on faith. We're never doing this again. We don't trust you. What's the story?
5: It was quite an interesting moment, uh, those words spoken by uh, Conservative MP Randy Hoback from Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. This is important, Roy. This was not a success story. Uh, but humility and accountability are not the hallmarks of official life in Ottawa. Let's just, <laughs> I think we could say that. Uh, this is Mr. Hoback telling the chief public health officer for the country, that you gave bad advice. There was contradictory advice. I'm telling you, said Hoback, if if you are unaware that this is where my constituents, this is where the people are. And I think Hoback has a point. These people at the public health agency couldn't run a mass square house. They were fully funded, three quarters of a billion dollars a year. They were unprepared. This was the fire department for pandemics, Roy. That's why we set up the public health agency in the first place after SARS. They didn't get it done. More frustratingly, since humility and accountability, is a, they come to Ottawa to die, you will now have officials them talk about how, how many lives they saved, not how many lives they cost. You will never hear them say, did you know Canada had a higher death rate from COVID than Finland, Norway? Australia, South Korea, the Philippines. The Philippines is not a G7 country. What do the feds do? They compare themselves to Mississippi. They compare ourselves to the worst of the worst and say, what a good boy am I? That's really hard to take. I think the the reaction we saw with readers to that story spoke to the level of public cynicism and almost anger. Why is what is the tragedy in saying you know what that was not our best work? So and so has been fired. It wasn't good enough.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, th- we had protocols in place that were supposed to be um, started and and kept going and, and run for the, exactly this kind of situation after SARS. We had everything in place, and uh, when when the when the "Quote emergency unquote hit, they abandoned all of that and they decided they'd, they'd start a new way of doing things and we are where we are. So, yeah, I was asking earlier about whether people have faith in uh, in in continuing to take their their boosters. I've had three and I had talked to Dr. Isaac Bogosh earlier. I'm 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 on the fence about whether I'm going to go for number four. Tom and I, and Dr. Bogash has said, you know, the messaging wasn't the best. And I think that's one of the problems. The, the messaging has just not been what it ought to be. And, and so we ask ourselves many questions. And for me, just speaking personally, the answers that I got from the federal government, from Public Health Canada, have not satisfied me. And so that's where I am now. Now, on to something else. What's going on with profitability at um, the, as Mr. Trudeau calls it, irregular border crossing. There's no such real term, by the way. He made that up. It's illegal entry into Canada. He decided it's irregular and now everybody repeats that. So what's going on? Who's making money at Roxham Road?
5: It's funny. Uh, that is the number one hotspot for illegal immigration. By the way, I know this for some reason has been politicized. It was a former immigration minister, Ahmed Hassan. Note the name who testified in committee four years ago, he said, I don't have a problem with illegal immigration. Let's let, let, let's not make it pretty. Let's just call it what it is. I don't have a problem with that. What happened was the Fed spent a, an enormous amount of money, over $100 million at Roxham Road, really building a welcome center for illegal immigrants by, I guess, a happy coincidence. A lot of these contracts, millions worth for leases and sublets and uh, sole source contracts went to a Liberal donor uh, whose family had donated over forty thousand to the Liberal Party. And you'll never guess what? If if you build it, then they'll come. So can you guess the spot in Canada that gets ninety nine point five percent of illegal immigration in Canada? That's Roxham Road. I know
0: exactly where it is.
5: Absolutely. And and MPs had a lot of questions. It's it's as as one MP, Pierre hosts uh, from uh, uh, Quebec, said. I, this guy won the lottery. It's, he's the happiest man in in Roxham Road is the contractor who, who, who got his millions with a phone call. As he testified, hey, the feds came to me. I didn't have to talk to any of you. They called me. It worked out happily.
0: Yeah, that's something. Okay, now one more. And uh, I can't let you go without uh, a little bit of a a word or two about a RifeCAN and some $54 million. Share the story, please.
5: No one can figure out why. How do you spend $54 million? We know that there was, we saw this in testimony in committee, the brokers who, who cooked this deal. Once again, they didn't even have to pick up a phone, right? They got the call. This is, a, this is an IT consulting firm. Two employees at $9 million in consulting fees. So that worked out pretty well. Roy, it's, <laughs> there's so many questions about ArriveCat. Who got the contracts? Why? Who thought it was a good idea? Customs Immigration Union says it was terrible. For land uh, border crossers, it was absolutely dreadful, did not speed things up, made it worse. But we see this as a trend over the, over the last two and a half unhappy years. The pandemic was the worst thing that ever happened to some people. But you know what, Roy? It was the best thing that happened to others.
0: (laughs) I I just want to say, it wasn't a rife can, but uh, my friend and I went to uh, New York last uh, July or August to see uh, Bruce Springsteen on Broadway. So we did everything we had to do. We got all the paperwork. We got all our, rolled up our sleeves and got needled. And we did everything. Everything you're supposed to do. So we get to Pearson Airport. We get through the airport, we get through customs, we go to the American customs, we go through the airline. We are every, we've are we gone through a whole process. We're in a taxi in New York City on the way to the hotel in Manhattan. We're saying, nobody checked the thing. So, <laughs> and that's a true story. It's only money, right? It's only money, Tom.